tonight we're back in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, and the last passage that we went looked at in Acts before Easter was a pretty sobering story. We looked at the story of Ananias and Sapphira. You guys remember the story, right? The disciples were selling their property, selling their goods to share with everybody and, and giving of all that they had and freely taking care of each other. And these two, this, this couple, uh, they sell some property and they tell the disciples that they were giving all of it to them. But it wasn't the truth. And there's catastrophe that follows. They fall dead, both on their own. It's, it's, it's kind of a very sobering story. That is a very important context for what we're about to look at. It sort of sets the tone uh, for what we're looking at tonight. The conclusion of that narrative last week, chapter 5, verse 11, says this. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. That's the context, that's the tone of our passage that we're getting into tonight. There is a, a soberness that has taken over the community. This, this reality of this is a God thing. Something is happening here that shouldn't be taken lightly. And that's kind of the tone. That sweeps over the whole movement. And it's easy, I think it's important also to keep in context, as we're going to look at this passage, um, the end of chapter 4. One of my favorite sections in the book of Acts is this prayer. Right after Peter and John are released uh, from being questioned by the Sanhedrin, they're threatened, remember, don't speak anymore in this name. You guys remember all that? This is yes. Good. Uh, and they pray this. They come together, the disciples come together, and they pray this. Acts chapter 4, 29 through 31. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And while they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together had, was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with great boldness. I think in our passage tonight, Luke, the author here, is linking that prayer with what's happening in this passage. He's saying God is answering their prayer. They prayed for boldness and that God would stretch out his hand to do signs and wonders. And in our passage tonight, God is answering and is continuing to answer that prayer through the apostles, through the disciples. They were speaking the word of God with great boldness. And people were getting healed. People were getting delivered. Signs and wonders are happening all over. And I'm convinced this still needs to be the context of our prayer. We still need to be asking that the Lord would do something miraculous amongst us today. I think that our city, the needs of our city, the needs of our county are so great, the 
depths of the separation from God and the, the depravity that's amongst us, we, we're all aware of it. Uh, it's so great, and I think equally the present experience of many in the church, the, the lived out reality of our faith is lacking. So this needs to be our prayer. God, give us boldness to speak your word. Stretch out your hands and do something miraculous. In face of opposition, God, and consider their threats. In face, in, in the context of threats, do something miraculous. Look upon your servants. They cried for boldness for their witness. They, they cried for God's hand to be stretched out for healings. They cried that God would perform signs and wonders. That's what we're going to talk about a little bit tonight. It's important. They, they weren't just, I think a lot of us would say, were open to signs and wonders. These guys were not just open for them. They were desperate for them. They, they needed to see God stretch out his hand and heal. They prayed that they would come. They prayed that signs and wonders would be done. They weren't just open to them. This wasn't a passive position. They actively seeking them. And if you need evidence why that's the case, I think we're going to look at that through our passage tonight. So remember, directly after Ananias and Sapphira, there's a soberness that comes over the church. And Luke says in, in verse 12, uh, Scott read this. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among, among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in, so in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, both men and women. Verse 12, this first verse here, I think we see a couple key things. Many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people. Like I said, this is a direct answer to their prayer. We're seeing it happen. And secondly, I think really important theme that you're going to see through the rest of the book of Acts is there's this unity that's amongst the believers. They're together in Solomon's portico regularly. They were all together they had a single purpose. They were going after a single mission. They were all together in Solomon's portico. I think it's, a, it's an important theme as we're going to look at the rest of this book, and it's really relevant for us today. We had a family meeting a couple of weeks, weeks ago now, I think, uh, and it was this purpose was in mind. We talked, uh, we wanted to be all on the same page. It's important that we are all moving in the same direction together as a community, that there's this sense of unity as we move forward. Not just for unity's sake. That's why we're doing 4 p.m. prayer. That's why we're trying to all pray together. That's why we're doing these story and table uh, groups. These guys, the apostles weren't just casually spending time together, the disciples, this, this early church. It wasn't a, a casual uh, social club centered on their pastimes and hobbies. That's not what was happening here. This was a focus. This was laser-focused, going in the same direction, 
a people of the Messiah. These were disciples that had a very clear mission in front of them to spread the good news of this risen Messiah. Remember how Luke describes in Acts 2 the activities of the early church, Acts 2.42. They, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Devoted. Awe came over every soul. Many wonders and signs, there it is again, are being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all. And as many had need, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food, their normal, everyday, mundane things with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having favor with all people, the Lord added to their number day by day. That's how Luke describes the activity of this growing church. God's answering their prayer. We see in verse 12 of our passage tonight, signs and wonders are being done. The Lord is adding to the household of God. The church is growing. Verse 13 and 14, I think, describe two results from this outpouring of signs and wonders. First thing, the people of Jerusalem, the outsiders, those who, who uh, were not a part of this early church, they stood in awe of the apostles and of this church. We know that when Ananias and Sapphira died and signs and wonders were being done, and then you get verse 13, which is odd. None of the rest dared join them, but he, people held them in high honor. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high honor. But that's not it. In the midst of all of that, that fear mixed with amazement and wonder and nobody daring to join them, many, many, Luke says, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, both men and women. These two verses at first seem almost contradictory. What do you mean, Luke, that no one dared join them, and yet at the same time, multitudes of men and women are joining them? That sounds contradictory. Here's what's happening. The early church, this initial group, was kind of a ragtag bunch. Their leaders, we know from Acts 4, were, and a quote from the Sanhedrin here, they were an uneducated, ordinary people. This was a ragtag group, these disciples of Jesus. But they had one thing going for them. They had been with Jesus. God was doing amazing things in their midst. God was moving amongst them, and people were taking notice. People took notice they're utilizing the temple, the temple grounds, to have their meetings. This is a really important fact for how this story develops later on in the book. The temple, temple grounds consisted of much more than just the temple proper. 
just the altar and the Holy of Holies. Like, I think we typically think of the temple. Those are the rooms that we think of. But that temple was huge. And it had many courts and porches and, and gates. There were meeting rooms. There was even a series of dormitories and places for people, the priests, to, to actually live when it was their time to serve in the temple. And so it was a logical place for this group to be meeting regularly. N.T. Wright explains the, contra the conte context here with a story, with a little analogy that I found really helpful. He said, imagine if you manage one of the great music venues in a city like New York or London. You're used to having the absolute best musical acts. You're used to having the like A-list best acts. You are used to having people come from all over the world to watch people perform in this venue. The news regularly writes stories about the performances that happen in this venue that you manage. It's a big deal. One day, there's a group of street musicians. It's funny, I, I called them buskers, and several people this week were like, what's a busker? Street musicians set up on the steps of your venue, right out front, and they start playing music. And in a matter of weeks, you, at first you don't think much of it. These are just street musicians. People are walking right past them. They're coming in to see the real show. But in a matter of weeks, crowds begin to gather around the street musicians. Crowds begin to come not to hear the big name that you have in your venue, but this group of street musicians performing on the steps on their way in. Now, the people that would normally be attending your group or your, your concert, they're hanging out in the streets. The news media that would normally be writing stories about the fantastic show is now writing about this little group that's jamming on the, the steps. You can imagine this scenario, right? The man, if you were the management, you'd probably call the police. <laughs> you'd report them, get them out of here. They're, they're distracting from business. That's not unlike what's happening here, just to set the context for how this is, the tension is building in this story. The church is this small group of disciples who had witnessed the resurrected Jesus. They had seen him, and their life was transformed. Remember that, that they said they could not help but speak of the things they had seen and heard. That's what we looked at last week. They couldn't help but speak of these things that they had seen and heard. And they're meeting in this, this temple complex regularly, and crowds are beginning to grow. And it's not just that they couldn't help but speak of it, but God was showing up and doing miraculous things. People were getting healed, delivered. Stuff that was happening in Jesus' life was now happening in the context of these disciples. And not just that, because of Ananias and Sapphira, we now have this incredible sense of unity and focus 
an overwhelming sense of integrity and unity. This was a group that was united after one mission to preach the good news of this resurrected Messiah. Unity, actually, I would say, is possibly one of the greatest miracles here. The greater, maybe a great display of the power of the Holy Spirit is to take this group, and if you look at the makeup of the disciples in this early church, you're talking like zealots and tax collectors. These are opposite ends of the political spectrum. You've got people from all different ends of the Jewish religious spectrum. You've got Romans. You've got Gentiles. You've got people from the big city and from little towns. And they are together. They're going after the same thing. And God is showing up. This community, this little ragtag community of Christians, had an incredible reputation for integrity. Everybody knew that it was a serious thing to follow this resurrected Messiah. To join this group was a serious thing. In the Ananias and Sapphira incident, you can imagine it would reduce the level of casual commitment. (laughs) Right? It would reduce the level of casual commitment to this group. What, if, if I'm not fully honest, I might drop dead? Yeah, that would reduce the level. My, my prayer is that we would be this kind of a community. That we would be this kind of a community. Uh, you know, ideally we don't need an Ananias and Sapphira. We don't need anybody dropping dead. But that we would be this kind of a community with, with unity and integrity and purpose and, and a mission in front of us. A community that is moved past casual commitment to each other and to the mission and to Jesus. A community that's radically committed to the gospel, committed to integrity, committed to generosity, and committed to the family of God. The church is not intended to be a Sunday-only community. It's an everyday life, lived-out experience. What's the result of a community like this? What's the, what happens when you get a community like this? It was obvious to everyone around them. It was very clear to those in, in Jerusalem that God was doing something in their midst. And that it would be a serious thing. You, would have, you don't take this lightly if you're going to join them. For sure, some were afraid what would happen to their reputation if they joined this group of Jesus followers. I'm sure some were skeptical. What, what, what is actually happening over there? People are dying? What's, what's going on? People are getting healed. They're talking about a resurrected guy. People don't just come back to life. There's probably skepticism, right? But I want you to notice something. Everyone held them in high esteem. Everyone held them in high esteem. Nobody was silent about this, though. 
Everybody was aware. This stuff was happening in public to the point that everyone in the city had to make a choice. Nobody could stand passively by. Are you going to join them or not? Some people are going to be scared. Some people are going to be skeptical. That's okay. The church can't sit passively in the background, guys. We have to live our life on display in community, in the community, and show what it is to be a community that's indwelt by the very Spirit of God. People should take notice. People should notice that there's something unique, something different about this Refuge Christian Fellowship people. There's something different happening there. And I think it, what, part of what made them so powerful here was this focus. They were all following the same leader. And it wasn't Peter. You guys, it's not, it's not the elders. They're following the Holy Spirit. They are living in dependence of the Holy Spirit. The same way Jesus said, I don't do anything unless I see the Father do it. They're living in a life in obedience to God. They were united with a singular purpose, with a singular master. And the result of this was, verse 14, that more than ever, more than the 2,000 or the 3,000, more than ever, people, believers, were being added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. We see unity. We see healing and signs and wonders. Incredible integrity. And the result of all of that is more than ever believers are being added to the Lord. I love that it says it that way too. Added to the Lord. Not to any particular church or a group or, or a party. They're being added to the Lord. This is adoption language. They're being brought into the family and adopted as his own. Men and women, multitudes of them are being adopted into God's family. And this is, they're, they're beginning, sorry, they're becoming children of God. Once they were dead in their sins and their trespasses, they were far from God and now they're alive in Christ. They've become sons and daughters of the living God. Now, of course, that means they're part of the church, too. But I just like the language there. It's, they're his. Another implication here that is worth pointing out. Every indication we have is that this was happening every day. Not just on Sundays. In fact, I don't even think they switched their gathering to Sundays for some time after this. This is happening. This is the normal everyday life of this early church. Not just a once a week thing. We really, um, the reality is, guys, if, if it's true that you've been born again, that the very Spirit of God has taken up residency in you, 
He lives and dwells in you. He wants to work through you. If that's true, if Jesus has really changed your life, transformed you into a new person, if he saved you, we have a story to tell. We can point people to Jesus. What did Jesus do for you? I think all of that's happening here in this story in, uh, in this story in Acts. The believer's lifestyle and what they believed, this truth that they had witnessed in the resurrection, this amazing thing that happened in Pentecost, all of this is coming together into this community that's following single single focused in the way of the gospel. Their lifestyles and their beliefs were coming together. Their words and their lifestyle were being brought into unison. They were practicing what they preached. The way they lived, meaning their normal, like, mundane rhythms of their life, it was all impacted by what they believed. It was all touched by what they believe. And honestly, guys, there's no other way around this. Just lost my notes. The reality is we, well, where am I here? There's no other way around this. We do what we value. You can tell, you can tell what you value by looking at your calendar and looking at your bank account. Where do you spend your time, your energy, and your money? Those are the things that you value. Your life is oriented around the things that you value and believe in. Very practically, by how you spend your money and your time. The question is, do we really believe that the gospel is the power of God into salvation? Do we really believe that God's going to do what he said he would do? And that he's faithful to finish what he said he's going to start? Do we really believe that God wants to reach our communities? Do we value that? Do we value seeing God at work in our midst? Do we value and love the people that he's put us in community with? Okay, let's look at the second part of this passage, 14 and on. And more than ever, believers are being added to the Lord, multitude of both men and women, so that they even carried out their sick into the street and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Sometimes those all words trouble me. It's really important. This is a really important passage for the rest of the book. Because this is the beginning. Now people are coming from outside the city of Jerusalem. The context of this mission is beginning to spread. 
from the towns around Jerusalem, people are beginning to gather. I've often described the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Now go into all the world. That I've often described that as it, it could possibly be said, while you're going, wherever you're going, make disciples. While you're going, wherever you're going, make disciples. Teaching them. Baptizing them. I think there's a side of this passage that reminds me of that. Look, Peter's just walking around. <laughs> Apparently, so many miracles are happening. So many people are getting touched. So many sick people are getting healed. And demon-possessed people are getting freed. That people are like, even if Peter's shadow touches them, maybe they'll be healed. Now, obviously, there's, there's nothing magical about a shadow. There's nothing magic happening here at all. Peter's not, not even doing anything. He's just walking. But what could happen when someone is so impacted by the Holy Spirit, when someone is so touched by the work of the Spirit, that they're just literally walking along, going for a stroll, and the Holy Spirit starts doing miracles around them. And this, this, is, a, this is a healing. Luke, remember, is a physician. He's a doctor. This is not just like a gullible author. These are healings that are taking place. People are getting healed. And it blows my mind. Like, Peter is not, he's not even taking part, really. He's just going about a walk. And God starts to do things. The Holy Spirit's doing miracles, or people are at least expecting it, when even his shadow passes by. When his shadow passes, demons are fleeing. Why? I think because of all the things that I've been talking about that God is doing in this community, their walk and their witness, what they believe, everything's coming together. There's integrity. It's beginning to join forces in the way that they're walking forward. They are filled with the Spirit in a way that becomes tangible outside of them. Catch this, though. People, assuming unbelievers at this point, were so convinced of the reality and the power of what the Christians believed, so convinced that they thought just the mere touch of Peter's shadow, a miracle could happen. There was such an integrity to the way these Christians lived, such a reality of the power that was at work amongst them, that unbelievers believed that even a shadow passing by could possibly heal them. 
And it it's, sounds crazy, right? That a shadow, a touch of a shadow could heal them. Is Peter Pan shadow thing going on here? But we know, remember, that touching Jesus' cloak, a woman got healed. There's nothing at all magical about Jesus' cloth, 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 clothes. There wasn't anything magical about his garment. But there was something in her faith, something in Jesus that was released. He felt it. Remember the story? I felt power go out from me. The same way, there's no power in Peter's shadow to heal these people. But there is power in the person who is so believing in the work of Jesus, so believing in the reality of the power of the resurrection, that they're willing to do things even like bring the sick to the side of the road that maybe Peter's shadow might touch them. One last thing I think Luke wants us to see here. I think there's a connection between the signs and wonders done by the apostles in verse 12 and the multitudes being added in verse 14. I think this is why the church prayed so zealously that signs and wonders would be done back in verse 4. It's why I think we should actually be praying for this. Signs and wonders help bring people to Jesus. Help bring them to the Lord. And here it helped bring people to saving faith. We have a supernatural faith, guys. Like, the things that we believe, Jesus was raised from the dead. That doesn't happen in the natural. So many of the stories we have in this book and the rest of the New Testament are pretty mind-blowing. Not easily explained, and that's intentional. There's a real spiritual realm. There's real spiritual things happening around us. Whether we want to admit it or not, that's the reality. And I think God wants to do things amongst us uh, to point to the gospel, to bring people to saving faith. That's always the point. It's never just so you can feel good or you can have a good experience. It's always to bring people to saving faith. In fact, this is a pattern. It's not just an isolated instance in the book of Acts. There's dozens of times that you can look. You can look it up where there's signs and wonders that happen and people come to faith. We know we already looked at the the miracle at Pentecost, 3,000 people. Tongues happen, languages, 3,000 people come to Jesus. The miracle of the lame man healed, the gate beautiful, 2,000 people come to Jesus. In Acts 9, two different stories. Peter heals a guy and Luke says this. He says, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Then in Acts 9, 40, 
Peter raises Tabitha from the dead, and Luke says this, it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. There's more than a dozen of these in the book of Acts, where these are strictly tied together. I have no doubt in my mind that the working of miracles, signs and wonders, these things, they are there to bring people to Jesus. It's about the mission of God to bring people to faith, to our resurrected. It, it testifies to the power of the resurrection. This is what Luke wants us to see. And surely this is why the, the disciples prayed in Acts 4.30 that God would perform signs and wonders. That he would stretch out his hand to heal. Not just for fun. It's to validate and bring power to their message. It brings people to Jesus. Acts 14 says this, that, that Paul and Barnabas, they remained for a long time, I think this is in Iconium, speaking boldly for the Lord, who did this, the Lord bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done. The Lord bore witness to his grace. They bore witness to the gospel. They testified of the gospel. And the Lord bore witness of his grace with signs and wonders. This is, this is important. Signs and wonders are God's witness to his word. Our witness is our changed life and the presentation of the, the scripture, the word, that's our witness. God's witness is these signs and wonders. The biggest of them being the resurrection of his son. There's, they're not in competition. Signs and wonders and miracles and, and the, the working of the spirit. and that It's not in competition with the preached word and the gospel. It's not one over the other. Things. Signs and wonders are intended to be a divine witness to the value and the truth and the centrality of the word. We bear witness to the reality and the impact of the gospel, and he bears witness to his word with miracles. Signs and wonders, as this has to be said, are not the saving work of grace. They're not saving you. That's not the point. They, but they are God's testimony of his word. They're not the power of God unto salvation. But what changes hearts and souls, what ultimately changes people is, Paul, uh, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, but we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's ultimately what transforms people. Getting a revelation of Jesus. We preach Jesus because in seeing Jesus, lives are transformed. Signs and wonders don't do that. But, but what they can do is they can break through the wall of disinterest. They can break through a wall of cynicism and false religion. 
they can, like any other good witness, they can testify of the power of God. They can point to the reality of the power of our Savior. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was an influential pastor, he pastored for 30 years and at Westminster Chapel. He said this in 1965, he said, we can produce a number of converts. Thank God for that. And that goes on regularly in evangelical churches every Sunday. But the need today is much too great for that. The need today is for an authentication of God, of the supernatural, of the spiritual, of the eternal. And this can only be answered by God's gracious hearing our cry and shedding forth again his spirit upon us, upon us and filling us as he kept filling his early church. What is needed is some mighty demonstration of the power of God, some enchantment of the Almighty that will compel people to pay attention, to look, and to listen. That is why I'm urging you to pray for this. When God acts, when God moves, when God acts, he can do more in a minute than a man with his organizing can do in 50 years. He said that in 1965. I think it's more true today. We need God to do something. My prayer for us is that we would be a church that is marked by these things. Integrity, radical integrity. Unity with a common thing that we're all moving towards. And the power of God at work among us. That we would be praying for each other, for healing, and for, for God to, to perform miracles in our midst. Why not? All of that to the end of authenticating and validating the gospel that we preach. Our Messiah is alive. He's not dead and in a tomb anymore. He's ruling and reigning. He's active among us. And one day, he'll return in body, and he will make all things new. That's the gospel that we believe. That's the gospel that we preach. And in the meantime, that new creation project that he's about, it's at work amongst us in our communities. It's at work in your life as you talk to people throughout the week. That new creation power, that resurrection power is at work amongst you. He is changing lives. He is adopting us into and adopting our neighbors into his household. He is sending you as an ambassador of his kingdom. And we are aliens and strangers. This world is not our home. Let's live this way, you guys. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you. That you are active amongst us. That your desire is that 
the power of the resurrection would be made known. God, we do, we join with that early church. We say, God, take note of the threats. Consider the threats, but speak, enable us to speak boldly your word. Grant to us that we would speak boldly your word, that we would testify regularly and boldly of the good news of the risen Messiah. And God, we do ask that you stretch out your hand to heal in our midst. That you'd stretch out your hand to perform signs and wonders. That you would validate that message that we preach. That you would bear witness to your word of truth amongst us. That you would bear witness to the gospel as we bear witness to you.